0: (laughs) (laughs) Well, welcome everyone in in the room and on Zoom. Um, I'm Liz Snell, I think everyone knows that, right? Um, So I'm going to be giving a talk tonight called Beyond Tolerance, Welcoming the Other. And I thought it was really appropriate that this lecture was happening right after Canada Day, because I've been joking that this is the most Canadian lecture title of all time. (laughs) Canadians really pride themselves on tolerance, especially on being more tolerant than Americans. who we don't tolerate. (laughs) But even for Canadians, tolerance is becoming increasingly difficult to achieve. We've been talking a lot lately about polarization living in this political climate where people shout at each other across a canyon and neither stops to listen. And in the church, we face disagreements about many core issues that divide Christians from each other. Growing hostility in the West towards Christianity has made it harder to talk to those outside of the church. And then this pandemic has highlighted both our longing for closeness and the dangers of it. trip to the grocery store, is fraught with anxiety as we feel others judging us and us judging them. People's various interpretations of the COVID-19 guidelines are a cause for conflict. Racism against perceived carriers of COVID, especially Asians, has increased. We long to visit our friends and family in other countries, yet we fear the dangers of that. We experience both the fear of the other, who could be spreading the virus, as well as solidarity when the whole world is going through the same experiences at the same time. (laughs) Welcoming the other has never been more dangerous or more necessary. So in this lecture tonight, I'm going to focus on the Christian response to those we perceive as other than us. And this can be people within the church, maybe those on the other side of the political spectrum from you, or it can be people outside the church with any variety of views. So first, I'm gonna talk about why it's so difficult to welcome the other. And this will include a common Christian response, which is to become insular and tribal. And then I'll talk about the commonly proposed alternative, which is to blend in with the outside culture. Then I'm gonna look at hospitality as an antidote to fear. Finally, I'll give some thoughts about how to talk with people we disagree with. So first, why is it so hard to walk in the other. Well, we're living in a time that is marked by the increase of fear. Anxiety disorders are skyrocketing. Our news feeds constantly heighten our sense that everything is falling apart. The ongoing pandemic and the race riots make that feel all the more realistic. Maybe everything really is falling apart. The world is marked, more and more by a competitive mindset that sees life as a struggle for power and dominance. But we live in this increasingly globalized society. Our grandparents would have been more likely to stay in one community their whole lives, surrounded by people who shared similar beliefs. But now we move frequently, and our countries have many newcomers from different cultures and religions. They're no longer people out there, but rather people next door. This is the reality of pluralism. We now frequently encounter people who look and think differently than we do. When this happens, we naturally feel afraid. Fear of the other is hardwired into us. We're descended from tribal societies that protected themselves by banding together in close-knit groups. Outsiders were a threat, competition for resources. So you might think that pluralism would cause us to become less fearful of the other, since we now live in close proximity to each other. But instead, mass media in particular has used fear as a powerful technique to keep us close off from the other. And Politicians often leverage fear of the other. A lot of political discourse seems to be based primarily on fear. And this seems to be on the rise as people often react without thinking to anyone they deem as a threat. David Brooks, writing for the New York Times, says our era is defined by fear. That's how people will think about it when we look back on it. He writes, fear puts a dark filter over everything. The fearful person is unable to hear good news, while any possible threat looms large. Fear induces hurting behavior. Fear makes us angry. The fearful person doesn't see particular individuals, just hateful shades who arouse disgust and can be blinked. Muslims are disgusting. Immigrants are disgusting. Republicans are disgusting. So we live in a climate of increasing fear toward those we perceive as other. How does this affect those of us in the church right now? Well, pluralism provides a big challenge to Christianity. No longer do others accept our view as the only plausible one. There are so many people around us Sincerely believing otherwise, we're not just living in a post-Christian age in the West, where Christianity has been dwarfed by the secular. Now, as more newcomers arrive with their own worldviews and religions, even the secular has become only one option on a cluttered table of persons. Far from being the default worldview, Christianity is often seen as the least appealing of the many options. Where Christians can find themselves wondering, "What happened?" All of a sudden, even in my own lifetime, it's shifted. Christians in the West have gone from being seen just morally upright, uptight, to actually being immoral. They're a threat to Canadian or American values. We're intolerant and bigoted. We're the bad guys, duh. <laughs> I think most of us, me included, would much rather be seen as giddy two shoes than be the judgmental. Why can't you just ostracize me for being too perfect? (laughs) But Christians find that they've been cast as the villains. Becoming a disliked religious minority can easily lead us to fear. I remember when I was studying creative writing at UVic, which is the the university here. um, Christians were a small minority there. I'm sure they still are, probably even less when I was there. Um, well, I had to stop reading the school newspaper because the articles were so often blatantly anti-Christian, and it made me afraid that my classmates were going to hate me. Um, and I was really afraid to be open about my Christian beliefs. There were times where I stood up, but it was it was hard. Um, so, And I'm guessing that every person in this room at different points, um, those of you who are Christians, have experienced some hesit- hesitancy to tell somebody about it. We wonder... What will they assume? What will they ask? Will they immediately want to talk about the most contentious issues? Will they want to talk to me at all? I have a friend who went with me to a Christian conference, conference on gender issues in Victoria. Because she works in the public sector, I won't tell you what she does to protect her identity, <laughs> but she decided to sit at the far side of the room in case the event was being filmed, because she was afraid that she might lose her job if someone found out she had attended. And I'm sure that we could all tell stories like this. The theme that runs through them all is fear. And the fear isn't all unjustified. There is real hostility towards Christianity. So when we're afraid of those around us, what happens? Well, Dick Kai's, who's the former director of the Boston Library, talks about two reactions Christians often have towards those they fear. One is to act like musk oxen. Who knows what a musk is? Bark, what is a musk ox?
1: It's an animal that, uh, when they're being attacked, turns inward
2: yeah. and, uh, and gathers around
0: the prey. Right. But uh, it seems, yeah. <laughs> yeah. So it's a it's a northern animal, big shaggy, kind of like a buffalo, with a big shaggy cow. Picture that with big horns. But they actually don't turn inward; they they turn outward um, to circle to protect their young. Um, but the kaya says that it would be better if they they turned inward and. Just aim to blind, blind kick outwards at anything that threatens. Um, he says that fits the metaphor better. So, um, so yeah, it's kind of like the circle your wagons idea. So muskoxen gather in a circle to protect the weak and young members of their herd. And this is also called tribal Christianity. We create tight communities within our subculture that make us feel safe and understood. The big bad world is safely shut outside, and we just tend to our own. David Brooks is not writing of Christianity in particular, but humans in general today, and he notes how much we've all clenched up, this is a quote, how much we all now seem to be members of this or that cult, not literal cults, but different kinds of groups, fearful of saying something wrong, fearful of provoking a Twitter backlash, mindlessly repeating the cliches that signal to others that we are faithfully staying within the barricades of our tribe. Mm. So tribal Christianity came to the forefront with the advent of Rod Dreher's 2017 book The Benedict Option, which I gave a lecture on a while ago. So Dreher tells us that American Christians have lost this culture war, this battle they've been fighting to gain ground in Mm -hmm. politics. And instead of fighting these losing political battles, the church needs to build arcs and ride the floodwaters of the new dark age. These arcs are close-knit communities, something like Benedictine monasteries which survived the other dark age, which can preserve the best of Western culture for future generations and staunch the church's dramatic loss of young people. Well, this book, The Benedict Options, sparked a debate among Christians. How should we respond to the reality of living in a post-Christian culture? Should we close ourselves off to keep from losing more ground? Or should we continue to fight? While Dreyer's view is a lot more nuanced than a lot of people have portrayed it, he cautions against communities that have no vision for cultural engagement and keep their members tightly controlled. But his strategy can still sound like it comes from too much of a place of fear. If we cling too tightly to what we already have, what else might be lost? But Bear correctly notes the increasing pressure on Christians to change their beliefs. So when pressure from the outside toward the Christian community continues to grow, especially when it paints them as immoral, what happens? Well, first there's an exodus from the group. The ones, who are the ones most likely to leave? First is the people who haven't thought very much about their beliefs in the first place. They are easily swayed when their beliefs are no longer popular. Um, or when they meet kind and intelligent people on the other side. That's why you often see this deconstruction that happens when people go to university, because all of a sudden you meet people who are very smart and nice, um, who have very different views from you. And the others who jump ship first are the highly empathetic people. They feel the social pressure the most, not fitting in, and they're especially motivated by appeals to be more loving, which is a good thing. Well, when a community loses its more empathetic people, it becomes increasingly strict and oppressive. Its leaders may double down on rules to avoid contamination or losing more people. This strategy is rarely effective long-term, and you know, when it works, it works by using fear. So the church starts to develop these ingrown behaviors and in major blind spots because it's no longer being critiqued by outsiders. In this kind of environment, hypocrisy flourishes. Well, this will only increase hostility from an outside world that looks and sees no example of Jesus' love. The muskox response also totally misses Jesus' call to reach out. The church becomes only about its own interests. But we're called to help our local communities regardless of their beliefs. We're to reach those around us with the love of Christ not just those behind you. But before we diss musk oxen too much, <laughs> which is easy to do, I want to say there's actually something good about the musk oxen We are created for community. We need people who understand and encourage us. We also need to preserve values that bind our community together. This is our need for unity. It's too easy to dismiss tribal Christianity without recognizing the good desire behind it we created in the image of a triune God. It's like the Nanaimo bars. That's my metaphor tonight. <laughs> ternary is the core reality of both unity and diversity. And so we need both, both unity and diversity. But tribal Christianity is unity carried to an extreme so that we no longer have room for diversity. Okay, so what is the cultural solution to this tribal Christianity? We've seen that on one hand, the church often reacts out of fear by becoming like a musk closing itself off from the outsiders and becoming more strict. But what about all those empathetic people who leave? What is the animal metaphor we can use for them, you ask? Mm -hmm. Well, the solution is simple. You can stop feeling the conflict if you blend in like a chameleon. Mm -hmm. And this is often encapsulated by the word tolerance. For Christians, this is both a reaction out of fear, not wanting to be judged as judgmental, as well as a desire to be more loving. And again, there's a good desire to be recognized here, even if it's been twisted. It's like the desire for community is a good desire. The desire to be more loving and accepting is good. Well, <laughs> whenever I hear the word tolerance, I think of this scene in Pride and Prejudice. Mr. Bingley has just asked his brooding buddy, Mr. Darcy, if he wants to da- dance with the heroine Lizzie, Darcy replies that Lizzie is tolerable, are not <laughs> handsome enough to tempt me. <laughs> well, tolerable is not a compliment. <laughs> Lizzie overhears and tries to laugh it off but she is wounded. How much would it warm your heart to be told, I really tolerate you? <laughs> tolerance sounds more like putting up with than moving up. But however cold tolerance may sound, that's not really the way we actually use it. So what do people mean when they say we have to be more tolerant? Dickeis points out two ways of understanding tolerance, the old tolerance and the new tolerance. So the first older view of tolerance requires us to respect people regardless of their ideas. People regardless of their ideas. And for the Christian, this comes from the core conviction that people are created in the image of God, regardless of their religious or political views. So there's never an excuse to treat someone as subhuman just because we disagree with their beliefs or their behavior. Even the most evil human continues to bear the image of God no matter how distorted it is. The second way of understanding tolerance is that we should respect everybody's ideas no matter what they are. So the first is to respect people regardless of their ideas. The second is to respect everybody's ideas regardless of what the ideas are. And this is the way that most people currently think about tolerance. Merriam-Webster's dictionary defines tolerance as sympathy or indulgence for beliefs or practices differing from or conflicting with one's own. So that's more in line with the new tolerance definition. We often hear people use images that apply, imply that there's equal room for every view at the table. So all religions are roads up the same mountain, or each, every person is a blind man touching only part of the elephant of truth, they never say who's touching the elephant's butt, <laughs> but um, if you question someone's view, you're attacking them personally and arrogantly asserting your superiority. On the surface, this sounds like a really wonderful way to create a more just and open society. What could possibly go wrong? Well, there are three major issues the new tolerance. And the first problem is that this worldview is relativistic. It rests on the ultimate claim that no ultimate claims can be made, since each view is is equally true. In criticizing others for making truth claims, the relativist takes a hypocritical stance. The only truth is that we can't know truth. So, kind of shoots itself in the foot there. The second problem is that the new tolerance doesn't take differences seriously enough. It's a romantic way of viewing humanity that says everyone essentially believes the same things, and if we're just accepting, everyone will get along. This is a very naive view of how people operate. So when I lived in India in my early 20s, many of my default assumptions were challenged. For example, I remember before I went, I thought that all women must hate wearing burkas and find it (coughs) oppressive. So I was really surprised when I attended an event after a wedding where the bride wore a burqa for the first time because the women were joyfully celebrating, dancing around, singing, and she was so excited as she put this burqa on for the first time. Well, (laughs) that really blew my mind. But this isn't to say that I just accepted everything in Indian culture unequivocally. I love the generous hospitality that I saw and so many other things. But there were other things like the deeply ingrained remnants of the caste system that I strongly disagree with in the treatment of women. From a Christian perspective, I rejected those things while appreciating the good things in Indian culture that my own culture lacks. So if we take a relativistic posture, we have no ground from which to critique another culture or political view. If the new tolerance means no criticism, we have no true basis for justice. Just as the muskox mentality is extreme unity, the chameleon is diversity carried to its extreme. In this environment, unity begins to fail. People no longer have things to bind them to each other. So they know what they're against, but they don't know what they're for. Ironically, a strong streak of tribalism actually runs through a movement that claims to be marked by solidarity and tolerance. So Mark Leila is a liberal professor of the humanities at Columbia University, and he bemoans the lack of a cohesive vision for liberals. He says, this is why liberalism has failed in America. It's failed to capture the American imagination because it hasn't given people a shared sense of purpose. This is a quote from Leela. By abandoning the word we, identity liberals have landed themselves in a strange contradiction. When speaking about themselves, They want to assert their difference and react testily to any hint that their particular experience or needs are being erased. But when they call for political action to assist, assist their group, X, they demand it from people that they have defined as not X and whose experiences cannot, they say, be compared with their own. But if that is the case, why would those others respond? Why should not Xers a damn about Xers unless they believe that they share something with them. Why should we expect them to feel anything at all? So he's saying that the new tolerance is trying to create solidarity through emphasizing difference and the center cannot hold for this. The third problem with the new tolerance is that rather than drawing us close to others as it is intended to do, it actually creates distance between us. We become so afraid of saying what we really think that we stick to socially acceptable topics and try to say the right things. And this way of interacting just flattens out our social interactions. It also treats other people like children who need to constantly be protected from anything that might upset them. So it says, shh, it doesn't really matter what you think. Yeah. And in this, the new tolerance doesn't take people's ideas seriously. It keeps the other at arm's length. And this leaves us with little that's safe to talk about except the latest Netflix shows. We say the right things, but our hearts remain distant from the other. So the chameleon and the muskox correspond to Jesus' metaphor of his disciples of salt and light. And on the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus says, You are the salt of the earth, but if salt has lost its taste, how shall its saltiness be restored? The muskox Christian is so closed off from the world that he has either no desires to interact with non-Christians or he doesn't know how to talk to them. He is a light hidden under a basket. The chameleon that is salt has lost its saltiness. She no longer looks any different from the world around her so she has nothing to offer it. And both are reactions out of fear and both withhold the gospel from an aching and fearful world. So hospitality is the antidote to fear. If we don't want to be the chameleon or the musk ox, what do we want to be? I don't have an animal for this, I'm sorry. <laughs> but what is the Christian argument for a true welcome of the other? For Christians, just tolerating someone is not enough. We're called to love the other in a sacrificial way. So Jesus says, You have heard that it was said, You shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. What does it look like to welcome in the very people we disagree with? I want to argue that hospitality is the antidote to fear of the other. When I say hospitality, you might think of hosting your house, having people over for Nanaimo bars, I don't know. Or you might think of the hospitality industry. I think it's pretty telling that we have an industry that's called the hospitality industry. Um, we've come pretty far from a biblical vision of hospitality. What does it mean to give true hospitality? There are two important elements i want to touch on tonight much that could be said but i want to talk about acceptance and boundaries so first acceptance the bible tells us that when we welcome the stranger we welcome jesus i was a stranger and you welcomed me so this means that the stranger has something special to offer us the one who welcomes isn't the only one with something to give the host receives the person as a gift. We receive each one of you when you come in as a gift that we prayed for. Even people who really anger us have something to teach us. That's none of you tonight, but (laughs) I'm just saying Um, So in an episode of the podcast on Being, great podcast, Krista Tippett interviews two young men, Derek Black and Matthew Stevenson. And Derek is a former white supremacist and Matthew is an Orthodox Jew and they are close friends. Derek's father founded what's considered the first major hate website, and Derek was following in his footsteps. When Derek's college classmates in Florida found out about his white supremacy activism, many of them began to ostracize him. But Matthew, who lived in the same dorm as Derek, decided to invite him over for a Shabbat dinner. Before the first dinner, Matthew told his other guests they weren't allowed to bring up white supremacy at all with Derek. He knew that Derek was very well-versed in arguments. This is basically what he did in his spare time. And he didn't want to put him on the defensive or treat him as subhuman, only about his politics. So for over two years, Derek went to Matthew's Shabbat dinners and they became close friends. They said they were genuinely close friends. Uh, Derek began to realize that he had empathy for the very people that he was organizing conferences against. His whole worldview began to crumble. Now he has done a 180 and speaks up for racial reconciliation instead. So this is a pretty amazing story that a college student would have the compassion and, the, and just the wisdom to do something like that and the bravery. Um, but this story of Derek and Matthew provides an example of what's called social identity complexity. So when you have stayed in only one community with a shared ideology like white supremacy, the example here, you generally have a simple social identity. So it's easier to think in black and white terms because it's so obvious that all the good people are conservatives or all the good people are liberals or whatever. However, when you start to step across the dividing lines, you develop a more complex social identity. So sometimes this just happens naturally because of how your life goes. So for example, if you're a conservative Christian, but you also experience same-sex attraction, you're going to have more social identity complexity because you don't fit easily onto either side of the political spectrum. Uh, complex social identity does not mean that you don't stand for anything. <laughs> so it's not just like, oh, I understand everyone's views, everyone's right. It just means that you, you have more empathy for different worldviews. You can kind of understand where people are coming from. You have feet in different camps. And this is one of the reasons it's important for us to not take the muskox position. If we have no connection to other communities, we'll become hardened in our ways of thinking and lack empathy or understanding for those who differ from us. Not only that, but we won't be able to welcome the other in because we only hang out with people who use the same phrases that we do, listen to the same music and go to the same events. If, as Rod Dreyer suggests in the Benedict Option, we mostly focus our energies inward, we won't know any languages other than our own. We won't be able to communicate with anyone who's different from us. Well, we tend to be threatened by differences. So our impulse is often to try and win someone to our side by arguing them out of their views. And there's a place for that. That's called debates. (laughs) We can see them as a problem to be solved. But hospitality is not about trying to fix the other. We have to approach them with humility, recognizing that we don't know their story. Even they don't fully know their whole story. Only God does. And only God can bring transformation. Our job is not to fix the other or even to fill the aching places of someone's heart. Rather, it's to create space where the other can meet God more deeply. So to do this, we have to withhold our immediate reactions out of fear or a desire for control or even a desire to give the other person something that they want from us. We have to be willing to listen and ask good questions without immediately trying to say the right Christian thing. So boundaries, (laughs) that's acceptance, this is boundaries. The concept of acceptance sounds pretty great, but we also have to be really careful not to romanticize the other. We can believe that just showing unconditional acceptance will make everyone love each other and get along. Coming from someone who lives and works in community doesn't work that way. Um, These illusions come quickly crashing down as we discover that people are difficult. Even our vastly loving hearts cannot provide safe havens for all the misunderstood people in the world. We are difficult. I am difficult. My first term at Libri, I found that the hardest thing about living in community was recognizing how judgmental I was. (laughs) I constantly found myself so frustrated over little things other people did, how they chewed at the table or how they washed the dishes. I was disillusioned not only with other people, but also with myself. You live in community, I'm sure you know. (laughs) So Dietrich Bonhoeffer says, this disillusionment is essential for true community to occur. The faster disillusionment happens, the faster we can recognize our need of Christ. If we try to create communities that don't recognize the reality of sin, we are setting ourselves up for failure. In those environments, people feel pressure to be perfect, and they try to hide their sin. This is where all kinds of darkness festers and grows. We need to recognize from the start that even in the best community, people do harmful things to each other. We do harmful things to each other. And this is why boundaries are necessary. There are boundaries that protect the community, including the guests, and boundaries that protect the self. Both are necessary for hospitality. So hospitality can fail when the host only focuses on acceptance and isn't willing to confront the guest. Henry Nouwen writes, receptivity and confrontation, which also could be acceptance and boundaries, receptivity and confrontation are the two inseparable sides of the Christian witness. They have to remain in careful balance. Receptivity without confrontation leads to a bland neutrality that serves nobody. So that's the chameleon thing, bland neutrality. Confrontation without receptivity leads to an oppressive aggression which hurts everybody. That's the muskox. Let me say that again. Receptivity without confrontation leads to a bland neutrality that serves nobody. Confrontation without receptivity leads to an oppressive aggression which hurts everybody. So, welcoming people we disagree with, whether Christian or otherwise, is difficult. It involves openness to things that make us uncomfortable. Can't tell you how many times I felt uncomfortable at Liberty, as well as the courage to stand our ground when necessary. It can be easier to avoid disagreements altogether. But disagreement is an important part of taking each other seriously. Welcoming people means not treating them with kid gloves. We have to treat them with adult gloves instead. Derek Black said he wouldn't want his story with Matthew to give people the idea that just having your enemy over for dinner is enough to change his mind. He said he also needed to be challenged by people on campus who told him that what he was doing was wrong, straight up. He needed both the confrontation of his classmates and the hospitality of Matthew's Shabbat dinners. He said without either one of those things, he would not have changed. So too often we can talk about hospitality as if the host were a doormat. We think of a hospitable space as one where the guest is never challenged or made to feel uncomfortable. Again, this exhibits this romantic view that our guests will always clean up after themselves and be a peaceful presence. Just open the door and a harmonious household will emerge. But the Christian who understands the reality of sin knows that not all things should be welcomed in. At Labrie, we pray that God would send the people of his choosing. So we believe that you are answers to our prayers. But we also pray that God will keep away the people who aren't supposed to be here. And sometimes that surprises people that we pray that. But that is out of this understanding of the reality of sin, that there are people who can endanger a community. And when you try to fling open the doors without any defined boundaries, it can be um, very destructive. So for many years, I worked with children with autism and I learned through that that boundaries are very important for creating a sense of security. There were lots of different things that I did to create a sense of boundaries but I one of them was that I would use a chart that would show visual consequences. So if you get on the school bus and you choose not to sit in your seat and not listen then you will end up on a timeout when we get to the park. There's the pictures that show you. If you choose to Sit and you see it and listen. You will be happy and you will get to play. <laughs> that is the kind of thing. Wow. Well, this was very helpful for kids um, because mm-hmm. when the kid ended up sitting on a timeout, he wasn't surprised because, sorry, I showed you the chart. <laughs> you knew what was going to happen. Uh, and kids, and not just kids with autism, need to know what to expect. Mm-hmm. That is why they're always pushing to find out where the boundary lies. And parents who want to primarily be their child's friend don't offer the safety the child needs. Mm-hmm. Children aren't mature enough to make all their decisions themselves. This is also true of adult life. We have more agency as grown-ups, but we still need boundaries to tell us where we end and where others begin. We need to know what we are and what we aren't responsible for. So at Library we have a schedule and we have a set of guidelines everyone gets when they come. Um, and we try to keep these rules to a minimum. We don't just love making rules. <laughs> But without any structure or expectations, the community could not function. We need to know what we each are responsible for. Boundaries are essential to create a welcoming space. So boundaries also allow people to come and go. The host can't hold on to the guest trying to control him. The guest is free to leave, just as God allows us to leave him if we decide to go. But neither does the guest get to run the community. Some guests, simply are too disruptive for other members to remain safe. We can't control what others do, but we can control how we respond. We do have control over what boundaries we set. We need boundaries that are neither too so strict that no one can go in, or so porous that everything can come in. Sorry, no one can go out, or so porous that everything can come in. So Henry Cloud and John T- Townsend written this book of Boundaries, and they say, boundaries are not walls. The Bible does not say that we are to be walled off from others. In fact, it says that we are to be one with them. We are to be in community with them. But every, in every community, all members have their own space and property. The important thing is that property lines be permeable enough to allow passing and strong enough to keep out danger. So permeable enough to allow passing, strong enough to keep out danger. So what kind of boundaries keep a community safe for its members? Well, the church has often tried to be missional, to reach out without making sure its own community has a sense of identity. When communities without a shared sense of purpose and guidelines try to welcome the other, they start to fall apart. Pastors Mark Sayers and John Comer relate how in the early 2000s, they tried to appeal to outsiders by playing secular music, lighting candles, and having meetings in pubs. And these are what some call seeker-friendly churches, trying to be cool and relevant. But soon they discovered that rather than bringing outsiders in, their own members were becoming more interested in the pubs than the church. So the church had sent people out without preparing them first through discipleship. And these people easily became chameleons. Dick Kies writes, so often Christians turn into chameleons from being too alone. Having no other people of like mind near them, they gradually start to think that their dissonant beliefs are crazy and so begin to blend in. An isolated individual is too weak to stand or to maintain perspective. We need the support and accountability of others, not just for our own Christian survival, but to be salt and light into our society. So discipleship is essential for building a strong community. People need to know what they're for together, the members of the community. Our hearts and minds need to be shaped by teaching and formative practices so that we're able to critically engage with a pluralistic society. In a culture where Christians are increasingly the minority and a disliked minority at that, we have to strengthen our bonds with God and with each other before we try to welcome others. And this comes through building community but it also comes through solitude with God. So the boundary of solitude is important for establishing secure identities that can move safely into community and beyond. In her book, Reclaiming Conversation, sociologist Sherry Turkle writes of the necessary relationship between conversation and solitude. So through technology, she says, especially our smartphones, we have lost the ability to be truly alone and the ability to be truly present to the other. We are, this phrase she uses, alone together. When we lose our solitude and are constantly attached to our online worlds, we no longer have a sense of ourselves as separate from each other. We can use other people as a way to fill our loneliness. Instead of welcoming the other, we see our guests only as people who can meet our needs. If they can't, we have no interest in them. Turkle writes, it's the capacity for solitude that allows you to reach out to others and see them as separate and independent. You don't need them to be anything other than who they are. This means you can listen to them and hear what they have to say. This makes the capacity for solitude essential to the development of empathy. End quote. So, vulnerable conversation can only happen when we're able to receive someone as they fully are not just as the parts that we can use to meet our needs. And actually she says, this is what narcissists do. They use other people as self objects. They only can accept the parts that boost their own ego. So she says, without solitude, we can't construct a stable sense of self. This is actually, she actually bases this on neurological research. Developing a sense of identity is crucial for having a secure place to reach out into the unknown. Then we can risk disagreement without it threatening who we are. We won't need constant affirmation and agreement for us to feel secure. So, Henry Nowen echoes this by emphasizing that we need to embrace our solitude as a vocation before we can extend hospitality to others. He says, In solitude, we can become present to ourselves. There, we can also become present to others by reaching out to them, not greedy for attention and affection but offering our own selves to help build a community of love. Solitude does not pull us away from our fellow human beings, but instead makes real fellowship possible. Unquote. Solitude, now says, allows us to move from an anxious reaction to a loving response. And we see anxious reactions around us all the time instead of loving response. In Jesus's life on earth, we also see this interplay between solitude and community. He often withdrew to be alone with God, but not so that he could just spend his life avoiding the other. Instead, in that space, he found renewed strength and a sense of purpose so that he could continue to engage with the people he loved. I always wonder what he must have talked with God about in those times. Solitude is the personal boundary that allows us to move safely into the community, and community is another boundary that allows us to safely reach out to those outside. Well, the pandemic has really given many of us more solitude than we know what to do with, than we ever wanted. And I wonder what stories you all have from this time. I know that for some people, it's been a really valuable space to look at the patterns of their lives. But I also know that for others, they have felt consumed by their addictions and by loneliness. And I can relate to both. Let's pray that out of this enforced solitude, people would have a new awareness of their need for community, as well as time alone with themselves and with God. So healthy solitude gives us a stable sense of identity from which to reach out to others. And we may find that guests have become friends who also welcome us in. And out of that place, we can recognize the unique gifts that the other has to offer us. One of these gifts is being challenged to look at our own ways of being and thinking everybody's favorite thing. So on that note, in this last part of the lecture, I want to briefly discuss about how to talk about people you talk with people you disagree with. It's hard to do. Um, So yeah, we've we've been lamenting this polarization of politics and how hard it is for people with different views to talk to each other. I've been thinking a lot lately about the words liberal and conservative. Um, what they actually mean. And I think they both express important values for a flourishing society. So there are always things we need to conserve. And there are always places we need liberation. Wherever we fall on this political spectrum, conversations with the other can challenge us as to whether we're conserving what needs to be cons- uh, conserved and, protect and sorry, protected and liberating what needs to be freed. Similarly, cross-cultural conversations can challenge our assumptions and our blind spots. Well, I've been going through a season of a lot of conversations with people I disagree with, and most of them are my close friends. I'm naturally pretty conflict avoidant, so it's been a really steep learning curve for me to try and have these hard conversations. And I'm gonna give some tips on having hard conversations. Um, These are the product of my ongoing trials and errors. (laughs) that is how they have come about. I started them as a list in the back of my journal um, so that I could keep them in mind as I entered tricky conversations. (laughs) It's basically what has worked and what hasn't worked. Um, And there are more things that I'm inspiring to than things that I have mastered by any means. Um, I'm still adding to this list, so if you have any thoughts you want to add in the discussion period, it'd be wonderful to hear because I can use all the help I can get. And this list is not about how to have a debate. It's about how to have vulnerable conversations with those we disagree with. This is for interpersonal relationships, not for making comments on Facebook or YouTube. (laughs) Especially directed towards Christians, but it does apply to everybody, the basic principles. Okay, so number one, don't make assumptions, (laughs) except to assume that you can learn. And this first tip actually comes from a friend of mine um, who challenged me on it. She said, Liz, you're always thinking so much. Maybe you think you know why everyone is doing things. And that really hit home. <laughs> so we, we all want explanations for why people are doing things. And it's just easier to reduce people to categories so that we can dismiss their behavior. Well, she's just saying that because she's a liberal snowflake. Or he's just saying that because he's a white male. For me, the process of these hard conversations has been teaching me a lot more humility. I'm trying to set aside my preconceptions and labeling, and actually try to hear where a person is coming from. My social identity gets more complex as I see that airtight systems don't explain everything. When we lay aside our assumptions about why people believe what they do, we may actually find some commonalities between us that give us a starting point. Francis Schaeffer emphasized our need to work alongside people who have similar goals to us, even if we disagree on other points. Such a challenge certainly faces the church today. Catholics and Protestants, for example, are increasingly learning from each other how to engage with a post-Christian culture. And even outside the church, when we see people fighting for good things that we believe in, we should support what we can, even if we don't agree with every single point. We need things to be for together. Number two, listen more than you talk Mm -hmm. as I stand up here and give a lecture. And this is probably the hardest one for me because I am a big chatterbox and I always have something on the tip of my tongue. But not everybody processes so quickly or finds it easy to articulate themselves. And if it's a particularly emotional or personal conversation, they may require even more space to open up. I've had a number of friends tell me that it takes time for them to formulate their thoughts. And by the time they do, the conversation has moved on. (laughs) It's probably me who moved on. (laughs) Those of us who are quick processors need to give space for the others to be heard. It's so interesting to observe these dynamics in lunch discussions at Libri. Some people find it really hard to be quiet and some people find it really hard to talk. Well, listening is not saying anything, but it is rather actively engaging with what the person is telling you. So this can look like asking clarify, clarifying questions responding with appropriate body language and summarizing what they've said to make sure you've actually understood. I remember my parents teaching me this to to, uh, when you're in an argument to uh, echo back what the person is saying to make sure that you got it right. Um, Listening shows that you're interested in actually hearing the person more than in making your own points. St. Francis prayed as part of his prayer, "O divine master grant that I may not seek so much to be understood as to understand. (laughs) what I'm praying lately. It's a really good prayer when we're talking to someone that we disagree with. Grant that I may not seek so much to be understood as to understand. We need to make sure we actually understand what someone's saying rather than just what we think they mean. And it's all too easy to say they have a liberal or conservative view on this, so they must have a liberal or conservative view on everything else, etc. Don't just simplify someone's views, to make it easier to attack or dismiss them. Number three, ask the questions in your head. (laughs) We may have big questions about the other person that feel too scary to ask. We wonder about their mysterious past or what they actually believe, or we may notice how they're interacting with our conversation. Often I find myself wondering, why did he say that? What did that silence mean? What is she really thinking? But usually I don't ask because I'm too afraid Or I think it will be awkward or offensive somehow. So one of my recent practices has just been to start asking the questions that come into my head, even if they feel awkward. So things like I recently asked a friend, does it make you uncomfortable when I talk about God? Because I didn't know. (laughs) Um, And she said, no, it doesn't. There you go. (laughs) Or just what are you thinking right now when you notice that someone's responding in a way that seems a bit odd? I find that most people are actually thankful to be asked those questions. Usually, I try to give them an out <laughs> to say just just wondering, or you don't have to answer, or something like that. Um, but more often than not, people seem to just be waiting for someone to ask. Number four: say what you feel, not what you think you ought to say. That's a title of a book. <laughs> I don't even know what the book's about, but I like the title.
3: <laughs>
0: it's a good book. to be right? Yeah. So. So often we put up walls by coming to a conversation with a list of all the good Christian points that we have to make. I know that I still do this. We can be so worried that we're going to say the wrong thing that we aren't honest about our own experiences. And this has been particularly difficult for me with my friends who have left Christianity. So I don't want to say anything that will alienate them more. And then it's just easier to avoid difficult topics. But I have been finding that they will only be open with me when I'm able to be open with them about my own struggles. Rather than think of us as on opposite sides, I'm trying to find the common ground we share as humans and begin there. Even when that means admitting that I don't have everything figured out. Some of my most profound experiences of being welcomed have been when someone was able to express their own doubts and longings. And in those moments, I realized that the other person is also a traveler joining me on this, this, the road not as somebody who has already arrived. We rarely seem to react well to somebody who's trying to give us all the answers, especially when they're trying to tell us how wrong we are. Um, so yeah, I'm trying to give you seven answers for how to talk to people. <laughs> but <laughs> It's an ongoing list. Okay, number five, almost there, is be brave. If you are the conflict avoidant type, and if you're Canadian, you probably are, um, opening yourself up to disagreement is really hard. So you probably find yourself wanting to back down and say, I'm sorry, eh? (laughs) (laughs) This may smooth the waters, but it doesn't create intimacy. Mm -hmm. Intimacy comes from hearing even the hard things and expressing yourself in return. Have the courage to say what you really think and hear what the other person has to say. One element of bravery can be the willingness to accept your limitations. There was an agnostic student who recently spent time at Libri, and I was really impressed with his rigorous way of thinking. But one of the things that I had the most respect for was how frequently he said, I don't know. I don't know the answer. I told him that I appreciated how he wasn't defensive about his beliefs. He said that he was happy for someone to correct him because if what he thought wasn't true, he wanted to know it. And I realized I had a lot to learn from this guy. We're often really afraid of saying, I don't know. It makes us feel not only that we don't have anything to offer someone else, but also that we don't have the answers for ourselves. But often people are disarmed by someone who's willing to admit the limits of their own understanding. This may help the other to be more vulnerable too. Then you're just not just talking about ideas and trying to win a debate, but you're meeting as two people who share human concerns. Number six is show kindness and grace. So remember, you're encountering another human being who has the same feelings you do, unless they're a psychopath. Start from a posture of wanting to do the other person good. Give them the benefit of the doubt. Be gentle. They're much more likely to extend gentleness in return. How often have we seen this online? Someone comes out swinging, the other person swings right back and no conversation happens. Come with a willingness to be vulnerable rather than a posture of defense or attack. The person that you are talking with bears the image of God, just as you do, even if they are a psychopath. Even if they don't come around to your way of thinking, they remain loved by God. We should be trying to communicate that reality in our interactions, no matter how much we may disagree. A conversation should build the other up rather than tear her down. She should leave feeling like she has been seen as a person created in God's image. There is no point in winning the battle to lose the war. Okay, last one, number seven. Admit when you're wrong. (laughs) So grace also means admitting when you've been wrong and apologizing when necessary. These hard conversations I've been having have often caused me to confront the sin in my own heart. I've had to look at my unhealthy ways of relating and the agendas I hold on to. I really appreciate when my friends care enough to challenge me on things. It's hard, but it's one of the greatest gifts that the other brings. They help us to see ourselves more clearly and become more like Christ. Even those that we may consider our enemies can bring this gift to us. We don't have to accept everything someone says about us, but we can prayerfully sort through and keep the things that are true. And then, if the other is willing, we have space to own our part and apologize. So my pastor hosts, uh, co-hosts this conversation group for people from all different beliefs. It's really cool. He sums up his rules for conversation as don't be a jerk, don't be a wuss, and have grace. That's like a simpler version of everything I just said. And because Say there's usually so don't be a jerk, don't be a wuss okay. and have grace. There's usually food involved, so also eat, drink, and be merry. <laughs> My church is similar, to Um And uh, laughing and eating together usually goes a long way toward easing the difficult conversations when they come. Maybe that's why we have so many of these conversations around meals, face-to-face. Commenting on Facebook or texting generally does not create a lot of productive conversation. One thing I really enjoyed about Labrie is how I get to work, laugh, and pray alongside people who are really different from me. I have had so many stereotypes broken as I've come to see people as whole beings rather than being just defined by a certain issue. And this is the gift a good community has to offer us. So those are some thoughts, seven thoughts. On I chose seven because, you know, biblical number of perfection. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. That is to, on how to have a conversation with people that you disagree with. And I'm going to end just with a few closing thoughts. So right now, Christians in the West feel this increasing pressure of being seen as other. The temptation is either to double down on self-protection or to blend in. But we have to remember that the early church was born into adversity. Christians were seen as the dangerous other, but their numbers continued to grow. And this was through a demonstration of supernatural love. They cared for the marginalized. They discipled each other. They continued to hope in Jesus, even as they were tortured and killed and many Christians around the world continue to suffer persecution in ways that we cannot imagine. So Christian faithfulness in the face of fear is a demonstration of Christ-like love. In an anxiously panicking world, our greatest witness may be that we don't give in to fear. Even if people treat us as other, we shouldn't do the same to them. Paul says, Beloved, never avenge yourselves, but leave it to the wrath of God, for it is written vengeance is mine i will repay says the lord to the contrary if your enemy is hungry feed him if he is thirsty give him something to drink for by so doing you will heap burning coals on his head do not be overcome by evil but overcome evil with good so there you have it take revenge on people by feeding them well <laughs> to offer hospitality is even to our even to our enemies is a radical nonsensical love We can only do this safely when our identity is held fast in God. And this is, after all, exactly how Jesus welcomed each one of us. While we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of his son. It's the death and resurrection of Jesus that makes true hospitality possible. He breaks down the dividing lines and makes us one in him. There is neither Jew nor Greek. There is neither slave nor free. There is neither male nor female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. Again, this doesn't mean blending in. The Trinity is both our example of unity and diversity. The three persons of the Trinity are distinct, yet one. It's a self-sustaining community that welcomes us in as distinct beings. God does not absorb us into him, like some worldviews would say, but he makes his home in us, as we make our home in him. Jesus calls us to demonstrate his love by building strong communities that remain open in sacrificial love. Perfect love casts out fear. Our guests have the choice whether they'll respond to our attempts at love, or imperfect attempts at love, but giving them love regardless can transform the fear in our own hearts. Only then can we stop reacting with anxiety and see in the stranger the face of Christ. So that's what I have, and I will love. To have some discussion, because I'm sure that you all have experiences which relate to this topic.
3: Right. So. What's a wuss? What's a wuss? Uh, <laughs> somebody who
0: uh, is not courageous and wants to yeah. avoid conflict. Yeah, I don't know the dictionary definition. I really went. Went. Yeah. Thank you.
1: Liz, I really appreciate the talk, and Mm -hmm. I found it really helpful. You're always very helpful to give lists (laughs) and very practical advice. Mm -hmm. Uh, And so I always am thankful for that. Mm -hmm. Um, And Julia loves practical lists. (laughs) One thing I'm thinking about, and I mean, I'm 100% in in all that you said, but I'm just trying to imagine some situations where I can even think back in my own personal interactions with a few people, Is it me? Uh, several people, <laughs> not you uh, in the political discourse where people who are so pro-Trump that they any, any empirical evidence or, or any new data gets incorporated into the view that they already hold mm-hmm and there's no discourse, mm-hmm. and they just want to shut it down. But I also see that on those who are, you know, Trump is evil incarnate, mm-hmm. the devil himself, mm-hmm. rather than just a very corrupt, immoral man mm-hmm. uh, that has a very difficult job or whatever, but so much so that conversation can't go forward at all. Mm-hmm. in imperial evidence or new data gets incorporated into what they already believe. And so I find it, yes, I can listen and I have listened and I've asked questions Mm -hmm. but I find it very difficult to contribute any difference
4: Mm
1: -hmm. uh, and create a more nuanced or social complex. So I'm just wondering uh, Is it a time to disengage or is it a time, do you just give it more time?
0: Mm-hmm. Um, I I mean, I have some thoughts, but I would actually really like to hear what, if it, anyone else has any thoughts on this first, because um, I think it's probably something most of us have had some experience with. <laughs> Does anyone have any ideas?
3: No, I think that was what I explained. I think the extreme or not, they're so extreme, they're not, related. they're not drawing in the middle.
4: Mm-hmm.
3: It's completely detached. And uh, I almost agree that, uh, I think, I think, yeah, uh, yeah, I would almost, in my, what I've done is I completely detached with politics and the news. And my, my level of happiness has increased. <laughs> <laughs> and I'm really trying to, and what I tell my friend, like, I for barbecue, I said, I really would like to not talk about politics because I don't want to lose my friend over
4: mm.
3: over Trump or divorce my wife if I have it. Because I heard that even couple are divorced. Anyway. <laughs> or over, um, but I think it's true that some people are so focused that Trump is evil that they don't want to see anything good. And some people are so pro-Trump that they don't want to see something. I mm-hmm. mean, with Clark, it's hard to add anything because you explained things very so you
0: just need Clark there for every conversation. <laughs> we just have to choose the other side. So
5: I had lunch with a friend uh, yesterday. I think it was yesterday or the day before. Anyway, and we go way back. Um, and, and then at one point, she speaking of Trump, she started talking about the evils of Trump with such men, you know, such... Passion and, and as if everybody believed the way she does. And I just, so I had have, I have a moment to decide, okay, this, this could affect our relationship because I think very differently than what she's saying. Do I say nothing and preserve the relationship or do, for my own self, speak up not be the, yeah, the chameleon or whatever. I really like the way you describe those things. Anyway, do I speak up? But but I need to, I'm praying at the same time, do it in a way to preserve the relationship, to make sure that she is more important than Mm -hmm. anything I believe. So I did say, just so you know, I actually quite like Trump. And she's like, (laughs) she was like, looked at me as if she... Anyway, she felt really bad for me and really sorry for me. And and then she went on to, to describe why, you know, to defend herself. I thought, okay, now how do I just, I just felt I needed to say that. But now I want to not get sucked into the over oh, this, over that, over this, over that. And so she, I let her finish all the reasons why she felt trump was the reason why the world is ending and then i shared well have you considered this one thing and i shared one thing and she listened which is really nice and then she started again and then i just i ended it i just said well you know we can agree to disagree and so it was important that I at least spoke up for an alternative mm-hmm. narrative mm-hmm. To, to the world, mm-hmm. but it was also important that I didn't get sucked into needing to convince her otherwise right. or whatever. So, but it was very uncomfortable mm-hmm. because it was something we've known each other for 20-some like 20 years, mm-hmm. 26 years, and yeah.
0: Anyway, yeah, that's really it's helpful. like, oh, I hope we can get over this because it was Great. such strong emotion. Right, right. Yeah. And it can be easy to just assume the other person is going to agree with us. Oh, I know. Not, not so sometimes, people. Answer, right? Yeah, and I've done that too. So if you're going on a rant and then realize the other person is like really <laughs> yeah. different uh-huh. views. Right? But, but I think I think the two of the things, that it, or it seems like the thing that you guys are both pointing to is kind of knowing the time and place.
4: Mm-hmm.
0: <laughs> so like that there's not always, it's not always... And I think even this would really this does is, is relate to what you say quite like just
4: yeah
0: it's not always the time to get into a big
4: no. discussion
0: and debate and well. and sometimes it's not the right person <laughs> either, because yeah, yeah, like it has to be someone who is able to hear you i think i think you're I think you're right like there's a, there's also like just something for like your own integrity even to say like actually don't agree with you yeah um but you don't have to get into a debate, you know,
4: exactly.
0: so, yeah. but, but yeah, I think I think there are people who are going to be willing to hear your perspective and there are people who are not going to be, um, yeah.
5: and I, yeah. I don't expect to be able to change anybody. And this can be like Christianity. It could be, I used to homeschool. So yeah. that was, that was sometimes contentious. Being a Christian is contentious. Mm-hmm. So these kind of subjects, and I think in the past, I'm that empathetic person that would just don't mm-hmm. want to make anybody else uncomfortable, mm-hmm. so I just mm-hmm. keep it all in.
4: Mm-hmm.
5: Whereas now I want to be true to myself, mm-hmm. but still be loving yeah. and respectful. So, yeah.
2: From Abigail, if I could say something to that, mm-hmm. um, from like the other side of that, because, you know, I like what you said about, um, not, not assuming, and um, for, for myself, well, I come from a place where I have very strong emotions against Trump. Um, those strong emotions, for myself at least, come from a place uh, not just of having strong beliefs, but of being a member of a camp that has been uh, persecuted by Trump, that has been um, hurt by Trump. Um, and what you said about vulnerability was really powerful, and so. Just going to take a sort of step out okay. there and say that, you know, as a, a victim of sexual abuse, to hear Trump say, like, admit on tape, sexually assaulting women, mm-hmm. and then to hear people defend him regardless, it is as if you're defending mm-hmm. my sexual abuser.
4: Mm-hmm.
2: So it's very, very personal for many, many people, mm-hmm. and um, it's not just about politics. It's about their people that have
5: actually been hurt by Trump and have been hurt by the validation of Trump's actions. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm.
2: Thanks for sharing that. Yeah, yeah thanks, Stephanie. think Melissa, did you have something you want to say to yeah. that? Yeah,
5: I just
6: wanted to point to you, when you were talking about your conversation you are having, you recognized really that you wanted to put her before, like, trying to win the argument. So yeah. I speak. And I think of the same example that you gave with the, um, the Jewish guy and the mm-hmm. white supremacist that he didn't want any politics or he didn't want any supremacy talked about because he Mm -hmm. wanted to put that guy before Mm -hmm. that political argument. And while there may not be time to, or the ability to do that in the midst of a heated discussion, Mm -hmm. I think that if you have that as your mindset, Mm
4: -hmm.
6: when that kind of discussion comes up,
4: Mm -hmm. you're
6: more easily able to stop the conversation when you sense that it's starting to unravel or whatever Mm -hmm. um, and look at other ways to engage them
0: so that you're putting them first as opposed to putting the argument
4: first. Mm-hmm.
0: Yeah, and I think that, that directly relates to what you shared, Stephanie, just realizing that, yeah, there are really personal things behind many, yeah. for many of us, the views that we hold. Yeah. It's not just like an interesting idea, you know, like yeah. there's. So, so that's why I think just approaching things with a debate mentality <laughs> is not usually get you too far because, and, and a friend exactly. and I, and <laughs> you often.
5: You can sense pretty much yeah. if someone is. If there's no right. conversation, it would be, like, no back and forth yeah. discussion because they are confirmed and for whatever.
0: Well, also, sometimes it can just be too, there can be too much too to much. rabbit. it. Like, exactly. you know, like I had yeah. a friend and I <laughs> recently had a throwdown about something. We've always sort of had, you know, arguments about stuff. and
4: yeah. And
0: it's something that brings up a lot of emotion for me. and we both take yeah take really different stances on it but it has a lot of personal baggage I guess for me Mm -hmm. and I can just tell like my heart rate starts to go up and I like I'm trying to make logical points but I can feel it spiraling and I'm like just it's and so it's bringing up more you know it's more than just the idea it's like I can tell that the point is not as important as like my reaction to it and so um so I think like I said to her Later, I was like, you know, I think when we try to have these conversations and just make it about ideas, and we don't realize that we don't recognize like our own personal, you know, Mm -hmm. relationship to the ideas, then that makes it, um, it always kind of (laughs) unravels at that Mm -hmm. point, because we're having a debate where there's actually all this stuff going on under the surface that we don't recognize. And that that happens because we're really close friends that we can talk about that.
4: Mm -hmm.
0: Um, But I do think there is a place for debates. (laughs) Like, I think debates are like a great thing. But it's... Yeah, it's not
5: always the
0: right time for a small conversation. Exactly. We so. need to
5: be sensitive to whether yeah. they are open to.
0: Right.
5: Like, I don't ever want to own, even in Christianity, I don't want to own, like, I'm the defender of the faith. So if you speak against Christianity, it's a right. big offense to me. Right. I want to hold it always out here. Right. And be able to discuss, and uh, whether it's a political thing or, mm-hmm. because I think that keeps relationships. Preserved if you're not holding the issue mm-hmm. so tightly.
7: Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Brett, I was very impressed with um, the responses of one of the conservative candidates, the uh, Ms. Lewis, I think it is, mm-hmm. and 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 she was being questioned about you know abortion and everything else and so on, and she had a positive response. You see, she said, "Well, first of all, I'm." against abortion because of sex selection so all all, all of a sudden she has built a bridge Mm -hmm. with people who are anti-abortion who are who are uh, you know kind of Mm pro-women but here you know some people have abortions to get rid of women you see Mm -hmm. so she is building it up but she was also very clear about where she stood without being bossy or saying you know we're going to force everybody to believe this way So I was very impressed that she, you know, as a public figure, Mm
4: -hmm.
7: because that's the first time because um, her, her, you know, Mr. Well, the the present head of the Conservative Party has not been able to defend himself uh, for taking his stance, whereas she is defending herself without being obnoxious and pointing out other ways of thinking uh, why she would have that position that she's not an obscurantist or whatever mm-hmm. and so on. So I, I thought that was a very helpful approach. Yeah,
0: yeah, I, so what you're pointing to I think is that that need to find like common ground and that was and for Francis Shaper that was often like a really important thing in talking to, to different people is to say like, okay, what is the thing that we agree on as the starting mm-hmm. point? And I, that's mm-hmm. I've come around to that a lot more and more with my friends. It's like, okay, what what are the things that we agree? on? Like can we can we say that we both agree on this? And then like, why do we have, you know, how does it, how do the differences build from there? But to say like, okay, do you, and, and that's what this guy, Mark Lila is saying in his book. Um, he is a liberal, but he's saying that things have fallen apart because people are not given um, a vision to be for together. And it's, it's just about, you know, people's own caps. <laughs> um, so we need to, we need to have things, we need to recast a vision to say like okay do you do you agree about this do you want this well this is why you should agree with my views because they're the ones that will get this thing done that you that we are invested in together so then you're saying like we do share something in common those people um and again that's like more <laughs> in the debate format but i think it can it can work too in just establishing personal connections and saying like like, we, we don't have everything not in common. Like, there are still some things we care about together,
1: and that's like a place to start the discussion. Yeah. One thing that, uh, and this is in part, and one of the things that you said, Abigail, that uh, one of the gifts I have found at LaBrie is that we have time mm-hmm. and we have lots of activities activity that's not just focused on one conversation mm-hmm. because conversations can get very personal mm-hmm. and very difficult and there's been lots of tears shed at our lunch discussions mm-hmm. uh, people who don't see eye to eye with one another or people hurt by things said or by things believed mm-hmm. uh, and that is something that has taken me a long time to know okay when do when do we, do we stop the conversation? And so you, you made this comment. It's, it's helpful if we can detach ourselves and try to look at the thing that's in the middle mm-hmm. and to discuss it with some kind of, uh, abstractness. Mm-hmm. Let's discuss the issue abstractly. And what we do have in today's climate is where, um, uh, where society feels everything personally, Mm
4: -hmm.
1: but at the same time, you don't want to Mm -hmm. depersonalize. And so it's important to, and so at Labrie, I've found that we have had time to say, okay, Uh, and sometimes the conversations are difficult or they need to, we we can wait and let them arise. I think Mm -hmm. it's very difficult outside of Labrie, even in my, like, as we have experienced doing this, to go out and have a conversation with somebody in the supermarket or a friend on the phone. I mean, uh, one of my very closest friends, we disagree vehemently about certain things. And it's very difficult for us to even discuss them because it will be so personally hurtful. And yet, uh, we try to speak around them because we need to talk about them, but we don't want to talk about them. But yeah, I just find it very difficult to have these very personal conversations of personal trauma or, or convictions of one person uh, being antithetical to that other person's way of being
4: uh,
1: around gender and sexuality, particularly. Uh, and so I just find it very difficult. And, and if we can have something that establishes that relationship beyond just that one conversation, it's a lot better even if it doesn't make
0: it easy Mm -hmm. yeah yeah that's that's totally difficult and something i'm still working on is that Mm -hmm. is like yeah how do you create some distance to talk about it as an idea and then yet recognize that ideas actually affect people and there are reasons that we hold those things and yeah (laughs) i don't know (laughs) anyone else's thoughts about how to do that maybe it's partly recognizing like yeah which at what time to take what stance you know mm-hmm. like when we when we have tutorials and meet with people one-on-one that tends to be much more personal um and then lunch discussion is is less so generally <laughs> not always but but yeah so maybe it's partly knowing knowing the right time for that i don't know if anyone else has mm-hmm. thoughts on that
8: i mean uh any quick thoughts mm-hmm. so I, I like you mentioned that book the boundaries book by cloud and townsend mm-hmm. and um I guess related to just like not only just like intensive debate where there's like, you know, personal ideology at stake and integrity, but even just in like interpersonal interactions over the course of a lifetime. Um, I think one thing for me that I've been meditating on in this regard is just the limits of empathy. Because like you mentioned, just for me, like this the current conception of tolerance is very romantic Mm. and deceptive Mm. and kind of ultimately unrealistic and not true to reality. And I think for myself, it's been a like humbling realization of like, man, like there's just truly some folks out there that you're not going to like ever really have. um, I don't know. I don't know what the word is. like, whether you're working them and it's just always going to be rough or you're trying to have like a, a, you know, like a meaningful discussion with them and it's always going to end in them sort of manipulating you or just not straight up, not even listening. and It becomes a one way street. Mm-hmm. And so I guess for me, as I think about it, I'm like, sometimes maybe there is no like connection mm-hmm. and yeah. you know what I mean? And mm-hmm. like, you can, tr- you can try everything, you yeah. know, like what's, what do we have in common or, Mm-hmm. you know um, maybe we could take it to casual love one both like the sport or something like that you know but um yeah and, and i don't think that's and it's just you know what that's just life right but I, I think that's why this tolerance thing i think can be sort of like yeah ultimately exhausting to strive for in some sense i don't know but like you said you don't want to you have to kind of balance those extremes right it's mm-hmm. it's like you're gonna just completely disengage from it you know interacting with anyone because well, there's just always going to end badly and no one's going to understand, you know, mm-hmm. but, uh, but I found myself like having to come to terms with the naivety, if you will, of like thinking, oh, if you, you know, if we can just kind of get on a similar right. level, as so I guess, just like, oh, well, sometimes it just truly really does not mm-hmm. pan out and you just kind of have to accept that.
2: Yeah. I
8: yeah. 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 um, so I don't know. It's yeah. just about,
0: it's, no, that, that, I think that's totally true. Like there's people I just don't talk about politics with, for example, <laughs> like, you know, and because it's just not going to be productive. Um, and, and I think like even like the story with Derek and Matthew, like Derek still had to want to come to the Shabbat dinner, like he had to say yes. It was like, there's nothing Matthew could have done if he was just like, sorry, <laughs> you know, so like there has to be some responsiveness on the other side to make it to make it work and and what and you know when you're in a family or like any community that you're kind of thrown in with people that you didn't necessarily choose there's going to be people yeah that are that are really different that you sometimes you just like i think you just have to stay away from certain topics because you know that's not going to be productive and Mm -hmm. and i you know people change with time too like (laughs) i've changed with time um and, and less defensive about some things than they used to be. So so yeah, it's hard to say what will unfold, but yeah, I think, I think you're right. I think there's just times where it's just not, it's not gonna work and you're, you're gonna be like setting yourself up for more and more frustration and it's actually like damaging to the relationship, whatever relationship you have you know,
9: mm-hmm.
0: um, to to try and make headway. Yeah.
9: Thanks, Liz, that's really, we really appreciate this. It's so practical. And uh, I wanted to give a plug for that book I was telling you about by uh, John Paul Lederach, maybe you know about it, Reconcile, because he talks about so much of this. And even uh, he says, eat with your enemies, Mm. like physically eat with them and Mm. walk with them, physically walk with them. And he's a negotiator uh, who's uh, done all kinds of uh, uh, peace, what do you call it, you know, working with people around the world in a difficult climate so I really appreciate that I have a one question for you uh, how much have you pondered uh Christ and his uh how he walked with others how he responded to others I'm, I'm thinking of course of the cross but just wondering if you've yeah. pondered this kind of in light of his life
0: yeah and yeah you, um, obviously there's people who <laughs> really disagree with Jesus because they killed him um and and yeah I think uh he reacted different ways to different people. So <laughs> I would say, mm-hmm. um, so he, yeah, he had this insight, um, of what was really going on in people's hearts. And there were times where he like straight up vanished. Uh, there were times where he engaged in debate. There was times where he took a more personal, um, technique to talk to people and like saw, you know, it's not really the question like, you know, after Lazarus dies and Mary's like, Lord, where were you? <laughs> he doesn't get into a debate with her. He just, he weeps. So he knew that what she needed in that moment was something personal, not like a theological explanation. And he does give something more theological to her sister, Martha, who's more practical. Um, and then with the Pharisees, like he knows they're trying to trap them and he gets out of that. <laughs> or, or he he does sometimes engage in, you know, like more, more theological explanation. So, yeah I mean that's that's just sort of an initial thought if anyone else has any anything to add um or Dad, if you have anything you're thinking of specifically with that that's that's great I mean it's something I've, I've thought about a bit but didn't you know didn't really get into in this lecture so
9: i think I think what came to me was just even from your life, what I see is that that wanting to persevere with people and and, and to love those that you disagree with and. And I mean, that's what, that's what Christ did, right? Yeah,
0: so. right, right. Yeah. Yeah, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do, that they're, and it seemed like he had this understanding that we, yeah, we just, we don't, we don't totally know, um, yeah, the depth of our own, our own sin, and, and, and can be very foolish. Um,
9: yeah.
0: Yeah, and, and yeah, the grace that he showed is, is definitely like the pattern the pattern for us. Um, well, he didn't,
9: he didn't take the bait, right? No, yeah. When, when he was already being tortured and suffering, and he didn't take the bait. Yeah. we were saying to him, which is amazing. That's one I can't do very well. It
5: comes, it comes to a place of, of motivation. Um, is the motivation to win the argument, or is the motivation to seek understanding? Right. And yeah. I think when it comes to a place of seeking understanding, Uh, You you, you did a great job of highlighting, um, you know, the fact that what is the common ground? Mm -hmm. And even just asking questions Mm -hmm. as opposed to trying to score points, Mm -hmm. you know? And I think that allows uh, people to say there are more similarities and differences, and let's Mm -hmm. talk about those differences in a more non-threatening way, Mm -hmm. um, which, you know, creates... Uh, it's not about your ego, it's about seeking understanding with that individual. Mm-hmm. And I, I thought you did a good job of
0: highlighting that. Yeah. Yeah, and Jesus had that very clear sense of his mission, what he was there for, and it's not just to like, yeah, prove he was right, which is why he could die and it looked like a failure because it wasn't about you know, prove, like, like, the ways that we think about success, you know, getting to the top politically. Um, that was actually, in the resurrection, that was the humiliation of the ordinary way of things working, you know. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Melissa? Different question. Um,
6: just that, the, um, the word tolerance, mm-hmm. or tolerate, um, I appreciated your definition sort of the new toler- perception of tolerance, um, particularly that the reasons that you gave that why it's not okay, or why it eventually will not be okay. But I do wonder about the idea of tolerance as a starting point mm-hmm. for our discussion. Mm-hmm. Um, my brother-in-law's recently working on the at least one thing that has sort of unexpectedly happened for like, him in the past year is he's had opportunity to work with the government ministry that's actually mm-hmm. called the Ministry of Tolerance. Oh, well, so developed a whole ministry around it and they had a year of tolerance as well and one of his jobs was to facilitate a lot of groups of young adults that were able to have a little bit more open discussion mm-hmm. because it was under a government ministry to do so mm-hmm. um again i really appreciate particularly the second argument that was saying that the end result is going to be that you're going to come to a place where you can't agree with each other in the end because you do come from different places and when you're in the Muslim world, you're definitely going to come to a place where your views no longer align, mm-hmm. but it did provide that initial great discussion i'm just wondering do you would you be able to see it as a place of yeah. starting, even though there's sure. that um, obvious end result potentially not like is, is that would would that end up causing more discord, do you think or
0: no, I, I think, I, and that's why I don't want to just throw out the word tolerance, like I, I appreciate the Dick talks about old and new tolerance, because I think I think that is that old tolerance concept is really important, <laughs> like that we respect people regardless of what their views are. But I think also, and I think this is kind of what I was getting at with the social identity complexity thing, like it's really helpful to try and actually understand where someone is coming from, you know. Um that doesn't mean you have to agree with them, but but you know, maybe that is a little bit of what is encapsulated in this idea of tolerance that um you don't immediately just react and say that's that's different from me. So Mm -hmm. so you know, everything about that is bad. Like to and and sort of what I was trying to say too is just like to look at what the good desire is behind something that someone believes, even if it's even if you think (laughs) that the belief that they have come to or the action that they're doing is wrong. So to say like, okay, what are they you know, like in, in the conservative liberal thing, like, okay, there's a desire to conserve something good. There's a desire to liberate something. Well, those are both things that can be for. <laughs> so um let's try and, and then look like, like maybe where where it's own their own expression of what they believe has is not like that good desire has been twisted or is not producing it anymore. So so yeah, I don't I don't want to throw the concept of tolerance out altogether just like just to critique the way that we um, understanding it as not being, like, you know, a fuller, more robust way. Um, and it can, because c- it can be a way that more puts distance rather than actually gets people to talk about what they really think. Yeah. Looks like my computer is getting close to dying, so we might have to take, let's take one more question. Last yeah. question. Um,
5: thank you. There was so much good stuff in there. Something that really stood out to me was the piece about solitude and, like, mm-hmm. that being... A requirement for building a sense of self. Um, I'm not sure if it's so much a question of like a statement of like alarm at thinking about the self being constructed in this like digital world. And if our phones are always with us, then are we ever really building that sense of self? And if the trajectory of our culture is not looking good in terms of social media and phone use,
4: Mm
5: -hmm. um. Your question is like, what do you, what do you as a well informed person on this topic, like, where do you see that going?
0: Or is there a, an antidote? Hmm. I don't know. I mean, I think it depends on what setting. Like, if you're in a family, you know, if you're a parent of a family, you have a little bit of control <laughs> over how you use technology, for example, or how your kids use it. And you can model that and you can, you can make guidelines. We have guidelines here. We don't give Wi Fi to our students. That's hard for some of them. I still remember one guy who was like, two of us had to tell him, no, you can't use your phone at the table, and he just put his head on his head. I didn't know it would be so hard. <laughs> <laughs> so it is, like, it's it's a real, yeah, it's a really difficult thing to let go sometimes. Um, but but yeah, so, so it depends on the setting. I think to have a community, to have some community agreements on it can be really helpful. Um, they're, they're, that isn't always in place. Some people work for workplaces that expect them to always be on. But like I had someone who told me recently, "Yeah, I told my boss okay, I'm not gonna answer. I'm not gonna answer emails on the weekend or something like that. I just drew that line. So that can be hard because it can, it can cut when that's the standard and that's the expectation. It cut into you know like sometimes. Um, yeah, even your, even like your ability to climb the ladder at work or something like that. So um, yeah, when that's, and then like I have another friend who just shuts her phone off for like whenever she has a day off, she's a nurse, She just shut her phone off. And I was like, I need to do that more. I did that last night because I was, as I was going through this again, I was like, you know what, like, I'm feeling kind of anxious about waiting to get a response from someone, I'm just going to shut my phone off. And I was like, this is amazing. How can I always forget that I can just do this? Like, I'm, I'm always like, and then, you know, in the morning, I was like, "Ah, oh, 16 texts, why didn't I turn on? Everyone? But about this idea of like, other people need us to respond immediately. Um, and that and, and what Turtle talks about is like, that we have this disgrace, it's the anxiety where we're not we're not um, responding. We're just reacting constantly <laughs> to things. So it's just like, okay, have a feeling, gotta share it. Like it doesn't give us time to ponder and to kind of and to sort things through and to have imagination and to yeah. It's just it's just constant like sensation response sensation response and that, um yeah. I think that is really really damaging. Um, so yeah, I don't know. I mean, technology is a whole a whole other kettle of fish for sure. Um, mm-hmm. But I think, I think, I think, you know, I think a lot of younger people actually are becoming more aware of this and probably some older people too, but a lot more people are going on technology fast or just like getting rid of Instagram or Facebook or whatever, like I'm hearing hearing about that more. I think there's more research around some of the destructive elements of it, so yeah. Okay, now it's giving me the look better <laughs> symbol. So we better close here. Thank you so and anyone who wants to stay and talk more, we can do it. Thank you so much for coming. It was great to welcome you all tonight.
4: <laughs> Thank you. Thanks. Thanks.